This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors. So we're going to keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Welcome back to the Place for a Purpose podcast. Elizabeth and I are so excited to talk to Kelly Capick today about limits and how our limits shape the way we neighbor. Kelly is a professor of theological studies at Covenant College. He's written a lot of books, including Embodied Hope and You're Only Human, which is the one we're going to talk about today. Both have won Christianity Today Book of the Year awards, and Kelly and his wife, Tabitha, have two adult children. And Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show, talking limits and neighboring and having this conversation with us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be with both of you. We were talking about this this morning, how my personality is I am a go-getter. I live by where there's a will, there's a way, and there's a will. And so we're in a season where we're being squeezed in some different areas of our lives. And so in that kind of season, I tend to kind of go into overdrive and want to problem solve. And so your book has been ministering to me in such a deep level, both of us. But speaking for myself, I never would have picked up a book on finitude. I don't like to think about that initially finite. But then there's been such a deep rest through that reminder. So just personally, thank you for that. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been really looking forward to this conversation because one of the biggest obstacles for people when it comes to neighboring is feeling like my life is already so full. How could I possibly add one more thing such as loving my next door neighbors? And on some levels, that's real. We only have so much bandwidth, but we want to show up and share the love of Christ with our neighbors, but we bump up to our limits. And I just think it's so interesting because my newsfeed right now is filled with all the life hacks. And I probably just outed myself that I don't like limits either because I'm clicking on all the like ways to maximize my day, push past my limits. I mean, I recently, and maybe you've seen this too, saw a video of this guy who believes that he can like bend and manipulate time to where he has three days in one. So from six to noon is one day, noon to six, and then six to midnight. I have not seen that, but that's incredible. We'll send it to you. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And he's just like, I'm burying you with how much I'm getting done. You are toast. You're toast. Yeah. And so subconsciously, I think we might think that this is how God wants us to react to our limits is to push through for the cause of Christ. And so when we heard about your book and how you say limits are actually good news, we knew we had to read it and have you on. So I guess starting off, how could limits possibly be good news for us? Yeah, they don't <laughs> sound like good news. It sounds like a negative. Yeah, no, thank you guys. And even with a podcast on place, it really does relate. I mean, so you mentioned finitude early. That isn't a word we use a lot. And it's just a fancy word for limits, limits in space, time, knowledge, and power. And the reason it's good news is that's how God made us. And our limits aren't a result of sin or the fall. And that actually part of the good design in which he made his good creation before there was sin and the fall were these limits. And those limits are not a negative. They are part of what fundamentally promote relationships, communion with God, communion with our neighbors, and communion in a right relationship even with the rest of creation. The word is need. Just think about how negative the word need is in our culture. If I say, 
Hey, uh, got to know Chris a little bit and I mean, enjoy spending time with him, but he really seems like he's pretty needy. Like he needs a lot of people. <laughs> I'm like cringing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's never a compliment in our culture. And we all laugh because we know that. Like we say, oh, he's really dependent on a lot of people. And yet, if that's the case, which it is in the Western world, how in the world do you promote Christian discipleship, which is fundamentally about growing in your dependence on Christ your right dependence and right relationship with others and rightly relating to the creation itself. And so we do find ourselves in this trouble. And the reason it's good news is because we were made to be in loving relationship with God, made to be in loving relationship with others. And those limits are what bring us together, if that makes any sense. That would be one of the fundamental reasons it's a positive. And you say early in the book that denying that, denying our finitude actually cripples us in ways we don't even realize. It distorts our view of God and what Christian spirituality looks like. So tell us more about how denying our limits can actually cripple us. It's a little tricky, right? So you talk about raising children, and there is, in a sense, an appropriate, healthy desire for them to become, quote-unquote, independent. There's something good and right about that. It is very interesting. I can't help it as a theologian. In the medieval times, for example, when they talk about the attributes of God, one of the attributes that's very important to the Christian tradition is independencia, which is just independence. And the argument is God alone is independencia. God alone is independent. He doesn't need anyone. Creation comes out of the overflow of who God is. He didn't need it. Comes out of the overflow of his goodness and love. But by implication, that means everything that's not God is not independent. We're dependencia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're dependencia. Exactly. And so it's one of these things where if you ask people, do you think you're God? None of us say yes. But we really do feel the weight of the world on our shoulders. We feel that. So anyways, going back to children, if we raise children, I get that this is complicated. We want them to recognize their agency. We need them to be independent in good and healthy ways. But we also need them not to feel shame to ask for help. We need them to not feel bad to say, I don't know. Can you help me? And it actually is a way of living in humility, rightly recognizing where we exist in this world. I mean, even as you guys, this podcast on place, think about what the denial of limits means for our lack of neighborliness. How do we feel when you run out of milk? Do we instantly think someone needs to go to the store or I need an egg? Or do you go to a neighbor's house and knock and say, hey, I really need an egg and some flour. Those are interesting testing cases. Those are interesting, like, would I feel shame? Would I feel bad? One of the reasons we don't ask a neighbor for some groceries is then we owe them. But actually, that's how relationships kind of work. There's a reciprocity there. There's a healthiness to it. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about all the time about one of the best ways to get to know your neighbors is to ask for help. The art of receiving. And I've never thought about it in terms of limits. But the reason I don't like to do that is because I don't want to feel like I'm limited. I'm in need and I'm dependent. But man, some of our best connections with neighbors has come out of us asking for help or when we always make it a rule. If we're doing like a little street party or barbecue, someone asks, can I bring something? We've made it the habit to say yes, because my reaction is to be like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. You just show up. But really, when we say yes, can you bring this? We are in need. It creates the opportunity for relationship the same way with God. If we're not 
seeing our limits and our dependence on him, it's like, why do we go to God when we need something? Instead, we're just going to try to fix it ourselves, right? Yeah. It's very interesting in this respect. Blessings are often particular challenges. So when you deal with materially poor neighborhoods, it is very normal for them to have to help a neighbor in the morning. Someone's car doesn't start. A tire's flat. Something's not working. Someone's kid needs a, there's a problem. And because you're kind of in this situation without a lot of resources, you just do it. And this is why statistically it's always counterintuitive, but in terms of generosity, when you do it in terms of percentages rather than amounts and just the way people use their resources, consistently people in the lower economic range are the most generous. And part of it's like people come up with different theories, but one of the fundamental reasons appears to be because when you're in a lower economic range, you tend to be with other people in lower economic ranges and therefore they have less, they're more aware of their limits and therefore they are forced to live together and aware of one another's needs. And so it's not a question of you just do it. Whereas in a middle upper middle class neighborhood, if your car doesn't start, you call AAA or something like that. So those limits are not fostering relationships in the same kind of way. There's got to be a connection there with the way we see ourselves when you were talking about people who are in lower income neighborhoods and the interdependence that comes there. It just makes me think about how Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit and how then for those who live in neighborhoods in a higher economic bracket, sometimes with wealth can come that independence. And we don't like to see ourselves as poor, poor in spirit. We like to be independent. Exactly. And it's like when you were talking earlier about, I love that you guys said, when you do something in the neighborhood and someone says, can I bring something? You say yes, because it actually affirms their dignity. It's not just a manipulative, I'm getting you invested, you're more likely to come, which is also true, but it is saying, you matter, I matter. It's the way relationships work. My life is impoverished when you don't bring yourself in what you have, and your life is impoverished when I don't. We need each other. Yeah, it's good. So kind of recognizing our independence and the way we try to handle things on our own is good in embracing our limits. You also start the book by addressing some questions that we might have towards ourselves or that are running in the background, which is like, am I enough? And what does God think of me? And I was just surprised. I was like, oh, this is a really interesting place to start a book on limits. It made sense as it went on. But why do you think it's important to address these questions? And how do the answers inform the way we relate to our limits? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. For those who haven't seen the book, the second chapter is really about, does God love me? And we all know the right answer. If you ask a Christian, does God love you? We kind of enthusiastically and confidently say yes. But part of the reason this all relates is it is about our particularity. And so I changed the question, and you'll see how it relates here in a minute, probably. But I found, like, as a college professor, I often deal with students and counsel and that kind of thing. And they're in my office sometimes and sharing some painful, difficult things, maybe with parents. And if I ask those students, do your parents, do your mom or your dad, whoever, do they love you? Pretty much always just say yes. But if I change the question and ask, do you think your mom and dad like you? It's just amazing how often the tears just start to flow. 
it's almost like, yeah, of course my mom and dad love me. They have to. They're my mom and dad. Well, the same thing relates to our view of God. Does God love me? Of course, he's God. He has to love me. But if you make it not just about generic humanity, but Kelly, does God like you? Does he love you in your particularity, in your smallness, in your weaknesses? What does that look like? That actually gets to be a vulnerable space. And that partly relates to how comfortable am I with my body, with my limits, with my weaknesses? And then you add into that our sins. So that becomes very important to think about. One of the reasons we're often endlessly driven is even though we would never say this, we kind of often think that's what God expects of us. God has a massive to-do list and we need to get after it. And so that's often why at the end of a day where we've checked off a bunch of things, we feel good. And when we haven't, we feel bad. So what does God actually think of us? Does he like us? Does he love us? And theologically, there's all kinds of challenges in there because we often do say, well, Jesus loves us. He died for us. But we often present it like the father's really angry at us. He's filled with wrath. He can't look at us. He can only look at Christ. And so I don't know if you want to explore any of that, but that's how it starts to be related. Well, absolutely. Years ago, we saw the documentary on Fred Rogers called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. So the scene where Mr. Rogers stoops down on the porch step with Jeff Erlinger and he's asking him about his life and it's this little boy in a wheelchair. And at the end of their time together, he says, would you join me in the song? It's you I like. And all of a sudden they're in that vulnerable space that you're describing where he's saying, it's you I like. It's you, it's your eyes, your skin, your feelings. And they move into this sacred space and it's like, there's not a dry eye in the theater. It tears me up just thinking about it now, years later. And I remember going home to my kids and showing them the scene and it impacted our family because I started saying, I like you, I like you. Every night as we tuck our kids in, I say, I like you. And it is a different part of the gospel. And it affected the way we approach neighboring because it's kind of that same thing. Oh, love your neighbor. God calls us to love your neighbor as yourself. But what about liking your neighbors? What about importing that scene of it's you I like to our neighbors, your skin, your eyes, your feelings? I mean, to have that kind of gospel acceptance and delight in people. And I love how you use the word, their particularness. What is it about that word? What does that word carry for you when you say our particularness? Yeah, just because we're all different. We say that kind of thing and we talk about diversity, but we do all have our own stories. We have our own shapes and sizes and senses of humor. For example, I met this artist once who's up in the Northeast. He's a Christian artist, but specializes in portraits. And I remember him saying to me years ago, and at first I didn't believe him, and then I thought about it, and I 100% believe him. He's done hundreds and hundreds of paintings of faces, and he said, I've just never seen a face that's not beautiful. If you actually look at a person and hold their eyes and look at their face, because people will say, oh, that's not true, you're being sentimental. No, it's stunning. There's actually these really interesting things in the art world I think it was in New York, one of these studios where they did this living art kind of thing. And they had this person who would sit there 
there was this space in this museum and you could sit about four or five feet away from them and no words were ever exchanged. And you sat there for about 10 minutes and just look at each other. And then you left. And it's so interesting because you have this filming from far away and there are people walking around and you have this filming and people sit down, they're uncomfortable, kind of laughing and giggling. And a few minutes in, they're just, they're crying. To behold someone, you start to feel known and loved. And there's these interesting psychological studies where you can take two people and you can move them toward dating and marriage, actually, with this kind of... Anyways, all that to say, like, we long to be known as we are, not as an imaginary kind of thing. Well, that ultimately is God who fully knows us and likes us. The reason he's dealing with sin is not because he hates us. He hates the sin that's distorting the good creature he made. Going back to when you said, do you want me to expound on that? I'd love for you to expound on how that works, how Jesus does see us and like us and even God the Father. Because I think it's important, like with our neighbors, there's a lot of guilt and maybe even shame over like, I want to love them. I want to make time, but man, I'm struggling to do that. And does God accept me in that? Like even in that weakness. So yeah, go back to that where you said, do you want me to expound on that? I would love for you to expound on that. (laughs) Well, sometimes unintentionally, our preaching and our theology can communicate the idea that God the Father is filled with anger and wrath because of our sin. But Jesus kind of raises his hand and says, I love him, I'll jump in. And the Father's like, okay. And so the Son of God comes, becomes human, dies on a cross, rises. And then for all eternity, Jesus steps in the way so the Father doesn't even have to look at us. We're safe because he's looking at Jesus. Now there's some theological truth in that, but you've got to be so careful. So it sounds great at first because you're like, oh, thankfully he's not looking at me and all my sin. But then all of a sudden at some point, it occurs to the Christian, well, wait a minute. Does the father love me or does he just love the son? Is he still looking away? Yeah, rather than like, no, no, no. I mean, everyone's memorized John 3.16. Well, John 3.16 makes it clear. God so loved the world he sent his son, which means it's a reference to the father, right? The son is the perfect representation and reality and image of the father's love. The spirit is the very love of God poured out into our heart. It is God who loves us. And that triune God who loves us is the father sending the son and the spirit. So all that to say that if we don't get that right, then it does make sense why we find prayer very difficult, for example. Who wants to be in the presence of God, if you feel like he's just angry and wrathful, but it's kind of like having someone say, I hate my kids' friends, but I love my son, and since he likes them, I'll put up with them. That's too often like our theology. So the reason that starts to affect even neighborly things is this basic principle, we only love to the degree that we've been loved. You only love to the degree that you've been loved. We only accept to the degree that we've been accepted. And the more we actually do buy into it and experience the radical acceptance and love of God for us, that is what liberates us to love our neighbors, even sometimes when they irritate us, even sometimes when they let us down, even sometimes when they're just different, different personalities and that kind of thing. I mean, it's easier said than done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. And I think as we think about like loving our neighbors who are different from us and accepting them the good, bad, and the ugly, just like you said, a key component of that is how we view God's love and acceptance of our good, bad, and ugly. We experience that grace with Him. We can then extend that to others 
So I don't know if you're an introvert or an extrovert, but I am an introvert. And I think one of the ways I experience my limits, especially when I think about loving my next door neighbors, is this introversion. It just takes me longer to build relationships with people. It takes more energy for me to get out there and get to know people. Maybe you could speak to that. How do we as introverts deal with that feeling that we're not enough, but we're surrounded in a culture and even in the church? I think the messaging is that the extroverts are really the ones who God can use and who are out in the front lines doing the great things. They're the ones who care about people. What would you say to that? Yeah, great question. Some people have made the argument that evangelicalism in America over the last 40 or so years has kind of fostered or put forward an almost exclusively extroverted spirituality. Whether or not that's true, but there's something to it. And so the idea is if you really love Jesus, you should want to talk about it with everybody out loud. You should be very comfortable being vulnerable on a big, all this kind of stuff. And so it all of a sudden, it does feel like if I'm serious about my faith as an introvert, I've got to become extroverted. And that's not true. So it's part of our particularity. One of the profound realities that's beautiful is to realize when we're united to Christ by the Spirit and we're made new creatures, that doesn't mean you have to be somebody else. It doesn't mean that the introvert now needs to be extroverted. God actually really likes what he made. He likes the Star Trek fan. Yes. He likes the whatever it is. You know, he likes the particularity. He doesn't need you to give up that. The problem is sin. It's not your personality, etc. Every personality has ways in which sin come out in it. Every personality has strengths and weaknesses. John Owen, the 17th century, talks about this, where he's kind of like the person with the strong personality who says inappropriate things and sin sometimes in those kind of ways. But Owen realizes when injustice is being done to you, a Christian who's just really nice, and normally you would say, oh, that's the model Christian, you often don't want that person around because they will not stand up for you. They will not speak against injustice because it's confrontational. The quiet person will be tempted to not say the important things out loud that need to be said when the bad joke is being told against someone in the crowd. And then the robust personality will be tempted to be the center of attention and all kinds of, whatever it is. So the way that starts to work with neighboring is, I think interesting is, what does it look like for you in your particularity to be a neighbor? in your particular location. Does it mean finding out, is there a reading club in your neighborhood that just reads novels together or whatever? If you're an introvert, you're gonna find a bunch of introverts in that group and you will slowly build a relationship, that kind of thing. So I do think your neighborhood's gonna have all the personalities in it. And I don't think God's asking you to be all the different personalities. There is courage for everybody to enter into hard spaces. I am curious if you don't mind sharing what is that like for you in your particularity, in your particular neighborhood context? And how has this book impacted you as a neighbor? It's interesting. We were married nine years before we had kids, and then we had two children, and now the second has just gone off to college. So we just entered into empty nester. And one of the thing about particularity is honoring the different seasons of life. And I would say, kind of thinking about this, one of the best seasons for us as neighbors was when the kids were littler and we would just force everyone, we'd just be outside a lot. And the way you meet your neighbors is by being outside, which is pretty unusual in our day, actually. 
But that's what happened as other kids. And then all of a sudden people start to come out, you get to know each other. And next thing you know, we're doing 4th of July celebrations together. But just being outside. So now I have to more force it. Like I'm outside doing yard work and have to be okay when I see a neighbor to stop what I'm doing and try and say hi, some of that. But also different seasons. We have some neighbors that are dear to us. We've been there for 20 something years. And now one of them's 95 and one's in their 80s and they're in a very different season. And just the other day, I hear voices and I'm like, oh, there's an issue and go over there. And it looks like just getting the trash for them out of the house and not trying to embarrass them when certain things are happening. The particularity for me is just not feeling guilty. Like there's no ideal way to be the neighbor. When your neighbor is 95, the way you be a neighbor is different than when they have a three-year-old. And you as a Christian need to feel not guilt, but what does it look like? You can't be everything to everybody, but what's it, what's it calling you to? What does it look like in some concrete ways to just be present with some neighbors? So there's a lot of work being done right now, exploring how to love our virtual neighbors, kind of this idea of digital discipleship, which is very much needed. But in some ways, the virtual world can kind of make us feel omnipresent like we can be in two places or a hundred places at one time on a Zoom call. And in reality, we're embodied people with two feet on the ground in one neighborhood with one address, particular, particular people called to particular spaces and places and particular neighbors. So I find this idea freeing because For me, when I think of Acts 17, God drawing the boundaries, like there are actually boundaries. Like I don't have to be a neighbor to every single person, people who I'm never going to have any kind of contact with. Now, if I have a contact with them in a virtual space, then yes, that's a neighbor in a sense. But thinking about being physical neighbors, there's a peace for me in knowing I don't have to be all things to all people and be loving every neighbor in the world. I am called to a few people right around me. Can you talk more about just the particularness of our limits and the physical aspect of them? I love what you said. I don't want to be overly reactionary. I myself am not on social media for some of these very reasons. I mean, as an author, there's a lot of pressure to be on those spaces by publishers and others. And even with this most recent book, my wife and I took some time to think about it. And this is not true for others, but we just said like, listen, my soul growing, I think we'll take my soul. (laughs) To engage in those spaces is so difficult for some of the reasons you're talking about. I mean, part of it is it takes time, but also the temptation for the false self grows. You can be more clever because you always get to say the right thing. When you're talking to a neighbor, when you're talking to people in your work, they see you as you are. Also, I just think it promotes arrogance and anger and all kinds of things that as Christians, I I just wish we would think more about. But having said that, absolutely, I just think our physicality matters. And I think there's a bit of an irony here where young people we often accuse of being in all the digital spaces, and they are. But unlike us, they're natives, and they have also seen the deep problem. I mean, I teach in a college. Mental health stuff is through the roof. 
And because of what I do, I speak in a lot of different places and I constantly, there's not a college I'll visit where they will tell me they can keep up with the mental health needs. But it's interesting, like talking to people in different seasons of life, I also think those are the very people who are going to help us reimagine life because they also say, this is not worth it. I mean, I have a lot of students who hate smartphones, which is fascinating. Well, let me tell you two quick stories that might be relevant. So in Canada, we were talking about this and they were talking about the rise of anxiety. And at a break, we were talking about some of the very things you mentioned and warning about some of the idea of spreading yourself through digital media and some of those things and the addiction aspects. So anyways, at a break, I end up talking to this couple. They're probably late 20s, early 30s, and they have a kid. And at break, they're kind of eating. And so we're talking about this. And they said to me, here's what's fascinating. When we get home, we're not perfect. But the husband and wife, they tend to put their phone down and then be with the kids, that kind of thing. And they said, do you want to know who's terrible about this, about being present in this place, is the grandparents. The grandparents will come over and the grandkid will be five feet away from grandpa's feet and grandma will just be on the couch staring at their phone. All of a sudden, I start asking people about this and it's everywhere. So this idea it's a young people problem is not true. So in terms of our neighbor and the physical spaces God has us, I do think we have to be aware of what are things that take us away from the people actually in front of us and what are things that promote that kind of relationship. But the other thing I was going to add that I found very interesting, I was in Kentucky, and I would say this guy is probably in his early 30s, married, and he's one of these, most of the time he works from home, online. And so now, once a week, he's part of this group, and they all play board games together. And then also, once or twice a week, he does this ultimate Frisbee kind of thing. They're just longing for actual physical connection with neighbors and friends. And I think that's beautiful. And there's something to be watching for that and trying to lean into that. And longing for physical touch. You talk about that in your book. And I don't know if you use this term, but I was reading about it. I think after I read your book, I was kind of researching it a little. And I saw the term touch starvation. Did you use that? Oh, I don't think I said that, but that's a great phrase. That's what it is. It's touch starvation. And so after reading your book, I've been trying to just, when I see a neighbor, especially an elderly neighbor, because you say there are people as neighbors because, well, we're more independent and because of the digital world that we live in, we're going through stretches without ever being touched. Oh, man, it's so true. And so when I've been seeing my neighbors, I just reach out and touch their shoulder or I squeeze their elbow. I try to do it like a couple of times. I hope it's not too weird, but I'm like, no, Kelly said, <laughs> we're going through touch starvation. Yeah, and I think I mentioned this in the book. One of the things I learned from my students through the years is they're in college. They all room together. You don't think twice about them. They're all on the couch squishing together. They're rolling around on the grass. And, so, and then they'll graduate. And one of the things we communicate in our culture is if you're going to be a real adult, you need to live on your own. And then all of a sudden they move somewhere, take a job. And I've had multiple students later tell me, all of a sudden I realized I went not just days, but sometimes week without any meaningful touch. And they're like, I never even knew I needed touch, but it was such a part of my life. Covenant is a fantastic place for students to be in college. But all of a sudden, having had good, healthy touch the lack of it is really significant. And 
with so many people working remotely and stuff, there's some good things about that. But this healthy touch thing is a reality and it's increasing, especially for single people, but not just single people. So yeah, and there's also, because of the right attention given to unhealthy touch that sometimes the church has denied, godly people are trying to be more careful and we should be more careful. So that's the thing is you don't want unhealthy touch, but at the same time, the overcorrection is to not touch in any appropriate godly, and like you know in the book, exploring the significance of Jesus touching is meaningful there, but it's never sexualized, it's never inappropriate, but there is an affirmation of your particularity, of your humanity, and of God's care for you that's very meaningful in those touches. So we can wrap up with this. I love how you wrapped up your book, Calling Us to Live in Tension. So when we come up with our limits, one response would be to be like the guy who's bending time and we're going to push through our limits and stack three days into one. Or we say, awesome, I have limits. I'm going to draw my boundaries and I am good. I'm never going to push those. I'm going to live within my limits. What would you say to our listeners, to us who we don't want to feel guilty that we're not doing too much. We don't want to try to do too much, but we want to engage, but also acknowledge our limits. How can we do that in our neighborhoods the way you think God would be calling us to? I guess part of what I would just say on a practical level that I've discovered is I don't trust myself as a judge of those things. So for me, what I say yes to, how I structure my life, my days, decisions, I really need, in my case, my spouse and some key friends who I can talk to about things. And I think that really helps because sometimes if you start to tell people what your day looks like, if it's a constant pattern and you say, this is what it looks like, sometimes they're going to hear what you do and they're gonna like, you are doing too much. You need to let go of some of these things. Sometimes they'll hear it and go, I think you need to engage a little bit more. I think you need to show up at church. You need to be willing to sacrifice a little bit. And I know for me, and we all have different psychologies and backgrounds, it's very hard for me to ever look in the mirror and say, Kelly, you've done enough. Because all I see is the negative. All I see is you're slothful. I could have been working for 12 hours and it still feels like, yeah, but you know, now it's kind of a joke as an example. But this really does happen sometimes where my wife will see me at night and I'm on the computer and she said, are you working right now? And I'm like, oh yeah, I got, and she's like, you're done. Go watch ESPN right now. Go outside, do something like that. In fact, for me, this journey has included learning to value walking or running, which also relates to being in a place and learning your neighbors and stuff. But it felt so extravagant. Like when do I ever have time to go for a walk? But actually it's been really important for my mental health, for my physical health, and even relationally. Because some of us will let ourselves off. Some of us who aren't engaged enough, we're like, yeah, I don't need to, these are my limits. So I just think we need community to help speak into that. I was so encouraged reading the end of the book where you talk about engaging in the mission of God. I don't know if I was surprised by it. I think I was, <laughs> like Henry Cloud talks about our limits and boundaries as being more like fences than walls. And so I picked up on kind of a similar vibe toward the end of your book where it's like, okay, we're not trying to just wall our lives off when we realize that we're finite. There's still times where God calls us to lay down our lives for one another. Exactly. But 
I think overall, my big takeaway from your book was just thinking about God is the creator, I am the creature, and I can rest in that. And so with my neighbors, he is their creator, they are his creatures, and I can engage with them and I can love them, but I don't need to be the creator. I can just be another creature. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not Messiah. Yeah, no, I do think that's very beautiful. And the other kind of getting to that question of the tension, to put it a little over simply, but not too much, is the question of love. One of the signs that we're doing too much is explore, do you feel bitter (laughs) all the time? And only you can be honest with yourself. Your exterior may be kind and look great, but it's amazing in our activism age how much self-righteousness and anger there is. And it often is, I'm doing all this, why aren't you guys doing it too? So I do think a sense of bitterness can often be a sign of we are denying the healthy limits God has for us. The flip side is, if you're in your house all by yourself a lot and you feel lonely and disconnected, one of the ways you could be denying your limits is you're isolating yourself. And it takes great courage to actually reach out to people and to build relationships and to stretch yourself and to push your limits in some uncomfortable ways. So I do think love is a question. Is love for God and neighbor and rightly relating to the creation, is that love growing or is it being undermined and corrupted? If people say, well, I have limits, and that means that's an excuse for not loving in any way your neighbor, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for writing the book and all the work that went into that. And I just feel really encouraged. And I hope that our listeners can live in the tension of acknowledging their limits, experiencing that acceptance that God has for them, and then just looking for those little moments, like you said, like a walk. It's not just a walk. It's a walk. And there's potential connection there for people even neighboring within their limits. So thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, you got it. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about. Or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us. Tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram, and you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend. Music